Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Greatest Love Stories. Today, chapters 3 through 5 of The Romance of a Christmas Card by Kate Douglas Wiggin. This story, The Romance of a Christmas Card, is actually a Christmas classic. It was first published in 1916 by Kate Douglas Wiggin, and it seems to have been rediscovered in recent years with a surge in popularity and reader interest. This story unfolds over two consecutive Christmases. The minister's wife, Reba Larrabee, is inspired to create some Christmas cards, as you saw in the first two chapters, complete with verse and images that she writes and paints. The first card is based on her friend Letty Boynton, as seen from her cottage window, and the second card, completed the second Christmas at her publisher's request, is based on the outside view of the cottage. All good Christmas stories need a happy ending and a good moral lesson, the romance of the Christmas card delivers both when the cards are sent out into the world, reaching estranged loved ones and prodigal sons. And now, Chapter 3, The Romance of a Christmas Card Letitia Boynton's life had been rather a drab one as seen through other people's eyes, but it had never seemed so to her till within the last few years. Her own father had been the village doctor, but of him she had no memory. Her mother's second marriage to a venerable country lawyer, John Gilman, had brought a kindly, inefficient stepfather into the family, a man who speedily became an invalid needing constant nursing. The birth of David when Letty was three years old brought a new interest into the household, and the two children grew to be fast friends. But when Mrs. Gilman died, and Letty found herself at eighteen the mistress of the house, the nurse of her aged stepfather, and the only guardian of a boy of fifteen— Life became difficult. More difficult still it became when the old lawyer died, for he at least had been a sort of fictitious head of the family, and his mere existence kept David within bounds. David was a lively, harem-scarum, handsome youth, good at his lessons, popular with his companions, always in a scrape, into which he was generally drawn by the minister's son, so the neighbors thought. At any rate, Dick Larrabee, as David's senior, received the lion's share of the blame when mischief was abroad. If Parson Larrabee's boy couldn't behave any better than an unbelieving blacksmith's, a Methodist farmer's, or a Baptist storekeeper's, what was the use of claiming superior efficacy for the congregational form of belief? Dick's father never succeeded in bringing him into the church, though he worked on him from the time he was knee-high to a toad, said Mrs. Popham. Perhaps his mother kind of vaccinated him with the religion instead of leaving him to take it the natural way, as the old saying is, was her husband's response. The first Miss Larrabee was as good as gold, but she may have overdone the trick a little mite. Maybe, and what's more, I kind of suspicion the parson thinks so himself. He ain't never been quite the same since Dick left home, except in preaching, and I tell you, Maria, his high water mark there is higher than ever. Abel Dunn of Boston walked home from meeting with me Thanksgiving, and says he, taking off his hat and mopping his forehead, "'Ah,' says he, "'does your minister preach like that every Sunday?' "'No,' says I, "'he don't. And if he did, we couldn't stand it. He preaches like that about once a month, and we don't care what he says the rest of the time.' "'Well, as far as boys are concerned, preaching ain't so reliable, for behaving purposes, as a good young alder switch.' was the opinion of Mrs. Popham, her children being of the comatose kind, whose minds had never been illuminated by the dazzling idea of disobedience. Land sakes, Maria! There ain't alders enough on the riverbank to switch religion into a boy like Dick Larrabee. 
It's got to come like a thief in the night, as the old saying is. But I guess I don't mean thief. I guess I mean star. It's got to come kind of like a star in a dark night. If the whole village, generate, generate and degenerate, hadn't kept on nagging and hectoring and criticizing them two boys, Dick and Dave, carrying tales and multiplying of them by two, en route, as the old saying is, I dare say they'd have both been here yet, instead of roaming around the earth seeking whom they may devour. There was considerable truth in Ossian Popham's remark, as Letty could have testified, for the conduct of the Boynton-Gilman household, as well as that of the minister, had been continually under inspection and discussion. Nothing could remain long hidden in Beulah. Nobody spied, nobody pried, nobody listened at doors or windows, nobody owned a microscope, nobody took any particular notice of events, or if they did they preserved an attitude of profound indifference while doing it. Yet everything was known sooner or later. The amount of the fish in the meat bill, the precise extent of credit, the number of letters in the post, the amount of fuel burned, the number of absences from church and prayer meetings, the calls or visits made and received, the hours of arrival or departure, the source of all incomes. These details were the common property of the village. It even took cognizance of more subtle things, for it observed and recorded the fluctuations of all love affairs, and the fluctuations also in the religious experiences of various persons not always in spiritual equilibrium, for the soul was an object of scrutiny in Beulah, as well as mind, body, and estate. Letty Boynton used to feel that nothing was exclusively her own, that she belonged to Beulah part and parcel, but Dick Larrabee was far more restive under the village espionage than were she and David. It was natural that David should want to leave Beulah and make his way in the world, and his sister did not oppose it. Dick's circumstances were different. He had inherited a small house and farm from his mother, had enjoyed a college education, and had been offered a share in a good business in a city twelve miles away. He left Beulah because he hated it. He left because he couldn't endure his father's gentle remonstrances of the bewilderment in his stepmother's eyes. She was a newcomer in the household, and her glance seemed to say, Why on earth do you behave so badly to your father when you're such a delightful chap? He left because Deacon Todd had prayed for him publicly at a Christian Endeavor meeting, because Mrs. Popham had circulated a wholly baseless scandal about him, and finally because in his young misery the only being who could have comforted him by joining her hapless fortunes to his had refused to do so. He didn't know why. He had always counted on Letty when the time should come to speak the word. He had shown his heart in everything but words. What more did a girl want? Of course, if anyone preferred a purely fantastic duty to a man's love and allowed a scapegrace brother to foist two red-faced, squalling babies on her, there was nothing to be said. So in this frame of mind he had had one flaming, passionate, wrong-headed scene with his father and strode out of Beulah with dramatic gestures of shaking its dust off his feet forever. His father, roused for once from his lifelong patience, had been rather terrible in that last scene so terrible that he had never forgiven himself or really believed himself fully forgiven by God, though his son had alienated half the village and nearly rent the parish in half by his conduct. As for Letty, she held her peace. 
She could only hope that the minister and his wife suspected nothing, and she was sure of Beulah's point of view, that a girl would never give up a suitor if she had any hope of tying him to her for life, was a popular form of belief in the community, and strangely enough it was chiefly the women, not the men, who made it current. Now and then a soft-hearted and chivalrous male would observe indulgently of some village beauty, I shouldn't wonder a mite if she could have had Bill for the asking, but this opinion would be met by such a chorus of feminine incredulity that its author generally withdrew it as unsound and untenable. It was then, when Dick had gone away, that the days had grown drab and long, but the twins kept Letty's inexperienced hands busy, though in the first year she had the help of old Miss Clarissa Perry, a childless expert in the bringing up of babies. The friendship of Reba Larrabee, so bright and cheery and comprehending, was a never-ending solace. There was nothing of the martyr about Letty. She was not wholly resigned to her lot, and to tell the truth she did not intend to be for a good many years yet. I am not a minister, but I am the wife of a minister, which is the next best thing, Mrs. Larrabee used to say. I tell you, Letty, there's no use in human creatures being resigned till their bodies are fairly worn out with fighting. When you can't think of another mortal thing to do, be resigned. But I'm convinced that the Lord is ashamed of us when we fold our hands too soon. You were born courageous, Reba. And Letty would look admiringly at the rosy cheeks and bright eyes of her friend. My blood circulates freely. That helps me a lot. Everybody's blood circulates in Racine, Wisconsin. And the minister's wife laughed genially. Yours hereabouts freezes up in your six months of cold weather, and when it begins to thaw out, the snow is ready to fall again. That sort of thing induces depression, although no mere climate would account for Mrs. Popham. Ossian said to Luther the other day, Maria ain't hardly to blame, parson. She come from a gloomy stock. The lads was all gloomy, root branch. They say that the lad babies was always discouraged two days after they was born. The cause of Letty's chief heartache the one that she could reveal to nobody, was that her brother should leave her nowadays so completely to her own resources. She recalled the time when he came home from Boston, pale, haggard, ashamed, and told her of his marriage months before. She could read in his lackluster eyes and hear in his voice the absence of love, the fear of the future. That was bad enough, but presently he said, Letty, there's more to tell. I have no money and no place to put my wife, but there's a child coming. Can I bring her here till afterwards? You won't like her, but she's so ailing and despondent just now that I think she'll behave herself, and I'll take her away as soon as she's able to travel. She would never stay here in the country anyway. You couldn't hire her to do it. And so she came, black-haired, sullen-faced Ava, with a vulgar beauty of her own, much damaged by bad temper, discontent, and illness. Oh, those terrible weeks for Letty, hiding her own misery, putting on a brave face with the neighbors, keeping the unwelcome sister-in-law in the background. It was bitterly cold, and Ava raged against the climate, the house, the lack of a servant, the absence of gaiety, and above all the prospect of motherhood. Her resentment against David, for some reason unknown to Letty, was deep and profound, and she made no secret of it, until the outraged Letty, goaded into speech one day, said, Listen, Ava, 
David brought you here because his sister's house was the proper place for you just now. I don't know why you married each other, but you did, and it's evidently a failure. I'm going to stand by David and see you through this trouble. But while you're under my roof, you'll have to speak respectfully of my brother. Not so much because he's my brother, but because he's your husband and the father of the child that's coming. Do you understand? Letty had a good deal of red in her bronze hair, and her brown eyes were as capable of flashing fire as Ava's black ones. So the girl not only refrained from venting her spleen upon the absent David, but seized the talk altogether. And the gloom in the house was as black as if Mrs. Popham and all her despondent ancestors were living under its roof. The good doctor called often and did his best, shrugging his shoulders and lifting his eyebrows as he said, Let her work out her own salvation. I doubt if she can, but we'll give her the chance. If the problem can be solved, the child will do it. We'll return to Chapter 4 right after this sponsor message. And now we return to Chapter 4 in The Romance of a Christmas Card by Kate Douglas Wiggin. Well, the problem never was solved, never in this world at least, and those who were in the sitting room chamber when Ava was shown her two babies lying side by side on a pillow never forgot the quick glance of horrified incredulity or the shriek of aversion with which she greeted them. Letty had a sense of humor, and it must be confessed that when the scorned and discarded babies were returned to her, and she sat by the kitchen stove trying to plan a second cradle, and see how far the expected baby could divide its modest outfit with the unexpected one, she burst into a fit of hysterical laughter mingled with an outpouring of tears. The doctor came in from the sick room puzzled and crestfallen from his interview with an entirely new specimen of womankind. He had brought Letty and David into the world and soothed the last days of all her family. And now, in this tragedy, for tragedy it was, he was her only confidant and advisor. Letty looked at him, the tears streaming from her eyes. Oh, Dr. Lee, if an overruling providence could smile, wouldn't he smile now? David and Ava never wanted to marry each other, I'm sure of it, and the last thing they desired was a child. Now there are two of them. Their father's away. Their mother won't look at them. What will become of me until Ava gets well and behaves like a human being? I never promised to be an aunt to twins. I never did like twins. I think they're downright vulgar. Wally, Wally, barns are bunny. One's enough, and twas o'er money, quoted the doctor. It's worse than even you think, my poor lady, for the girl can't get well, because she won't. She has gritted her teeth, turned her face to the wall, and she's refusing her food. It's the beginning of the end. You are far likelier to be a foster mother than an aunt. Letty's face changed and softened and her color rose. She leaned over the two pink, crumpled creatures, still twitching nervously with the amazement and discomfort of being alive. Come to your Aunt Letty then and be mothered, she sobbed, lifting the pillow and taking it, with its double burden, into her arms. You shan't suffer, poor innocent darlings, even if those who brought you into the world turn away from you. Come to your Aunt Letty and be mothered. That's right. That's, that's right, said the doctor, over a lump in his throat. We mustn't let the babies pay the penalty of their parents' sins, and there's one thing that may soften your anger a little, Letty. Ava's not right. She's not quite responsible. 
There are cases where motherhood, that should be a joy, brings nothing but mental torture and perversion of instinct. Try and remember that, if it helps you any. I'll drop in every two or three hours, and I'll write David to come at once. He must take his share of the burden. Well, David came, but Ava was in her coffin. He was grave and silent, and it could not be said that he showed a trace of fatherly pride. He was very young, it is true, thoroughly ashamed of himself, very unhappy, and anxious about his new cares. But Letty could not help thinking that he regarded the twins as a sort of personal insult, perhaps not on their own part, nor on Ava's, but as an accident that might have been prevented by competent providence. At any rate, he carried himself as a man with a grievance, and when he looked at his offspring, which was seldom, it seemed to Letty that he regarded the second one as an unnecessary intruder, and cherished a secret resentment at its audacity in coming to this planet uninvited. He went back to his work in Boston without its having crossed his mind that anybody but his sister could take care of his children. He didn't really regard them as children or human beings. It takes a woman's vision to make that sort of leap into the future. Until a newborn baby can show some personal beauty, evince some intellect, stop squirming and squealing, and exhibit enough self-control to let people sleep at night, it is not, as a rule, persona grata to anyone but its mother. David did say vaguely to Letty when he was leaving that he hoped they would be good. The screams that rent the air at the precise moment of farewell rather giving the lie to his hopes. Letty was struggling to end the interview without breaking down, for she was worn out nervously as well as physically, and thought that if she could only be alone with her problems and her cares, she would rather write to David than tell him her mind face to face. Brother and sister held each other tightly for a moment, kissed each other goodbye, and then Letty watched Osh Popham's sleigh slipping off with David into the snowy distance, the merry tinkle of the bells adding to the sadness in her dreary heart. Dick gone yesterday, Dave today, Beulah without Dick and Dave. The two joys of her life were missing, and in their places two unknown babies whose digestive systems were going to need constant watching, according to Dr. Lee. Then she went about with set lips during the last sordid things that death brings in its wake, doing them as she had seen her mother do before her. She threw away the husks in Ava's under-mattress and put fresh ones in. She emptied the feathers from the feather bed and pillows and aired them in the sun while she washed the ticking. She scrubbed the paint in the sick room, and in between her tasks learned from Clarissa Perry the whole process of bringing up babies by hand. Well, that was three years ago. At first David had sent ten dollars a month from his slender earnings, never omitting it save for urgent reasons. He evidently thought of the twins as company for his sister, and their care a pleasant occupation, since she had almost a living income, taking in a few coats to make, just to add an occasional luxury to the bare necessities of life provided by her mother's will. His letters were brief, dispirited, and infrequent, but they had not ceased altogether till within the last few months, during which letters to him had been returned from Boston with, not found, scribbled on the envelopes. The firm in whose care Letty had latterly addressed him simply wrote, in answer to her inquiries, that Mr. Gilman had not been in their employ for some time, and they had no idea of his whereabouts. The rest was silence. We'll return to our show and Chapter 5 right after this sponsor message. 
A good deal of water had run under Beulah Bridge since Letty Boynton had sat at her window on a December evening unconsciously furnishing copy and illustration for a Christmas card. Yet there had been very few outward changes in the village. Winter had melted into spring, burst into summer, faded into autumn, lapsed into winter again, the same old, ever-recurring pageant in the world of nature, and the same procession of incidents in the neighborhood life. The harvest moon and the hunter's moon had come and gone, the first frost, the family dinners and reunions at Thanksgiving, the first snowfall, and now, as Christmas approached, the same holiday spirit was abroad in the air, slightly modified as it passed by Mrs. Popham's mournful visage. One or two babies had swelled the census, giving the minister hope of a larger Sunday school. One or two of the very aged neighbors had passed into the beyond, and a few romantic and enterprising young farmers had espoused wives, among them Osh Popham's son. The manner of their choice was not entirely to the liking of the village. Digby Popham had married into the rival church, and as his betrothed was a masterful young lady, it was feared that Digby would leave Mr. Larrabee's flock to worship with his wife. Another had married without visible means of support, a proceeding always to be regretted by thoroughly prudent persons over fifty. And the third, Deacon Todd's eldest son, had somehow or other met a siren from Vermont and insisted on wedding her when there were plenty of marriageable girls in Beulah. "'I've no patience with such actions,' grumbled Mrs. Popham. "'Young folks are so full of notions nowadays that they look for change and excitement everywheres. I suppose James Todd thinks it's a decent, respectable way of acting, to turn his back on the girls he's been brought up and gone to school with, and court somebody he never laid eyes on till a year ago. It's a free country, but I must say I don't think it's very refined for a man to go clear off somewheres and marry a perfect stranger.' Births, marriages, and deaths, however, paled into insignificance compared with the spectacular debut of a minister's wife as a writer and embellisher of Christmas cards, two at least having been seen at the local milliner's store. How many she had composed, and how many of them, said Mrs. Popham, might have been rejected, nobody knew, though there was much speculation, and more than one citizen remarked on the size of the daily package of mail matter "'handed out by the rural delivery man at the parsonage gate. "'No one but Mrs. Larrabee and Letty Boynton "'were in possession of all the thrilling details "'attending the public appearance of these works of art. "'The words and letters of appreciation, "'the commendation, "'and the occasional blows to pride "'that attended their acceptance and publication. "'Mrs. Larrabee's first attempt "'with the sketch of Letty at the window on Christmas Eve, "'her hearth-fire aglow, her heart and her door opened that love might enter in if the Christ child came down the snowy street. This went to the Excelsior Card Company in a large western city, and the following correspondence ensued. Mrs. Luther Larrabee, in Beulah, New Hampshire. Dear Madam, Your letter bears a well-known postmark, for my father and my grandfather were born and lived in New Hampshire. Up Beulah way. I accept your verses because of the beauty of the picture that accompanied them, and because Christmas means more than holly and plum pudding and gift-laden trees to me, for I am a religious man. A ministerial father and three family deacons saw to that, though it doesn't always work that way. Frankly, I do not expect your card to have a wide appeal, so I offer you only five dollars. A Christmas card, my dear madam, must have a greeting, and yours has none. If the pictured room were a real room, 
and someone who had seen or lived in it should recognize it, it would attract his eye. But we cannot manufacture cards to meet such romantic improbabilities. I am emboldened to ask you, because you live in Beulah, if you will not paint the outside of some lonely little New Hampshire cottage, as humble as you like, and make me some more verses, something, say, about the folks back home. Sincerely yours, Reuben Small. Dear Mr. Small, I accept your offer of five dollars for my maiden effort in Christmas cards with thanks, and will try my hand at something more popular. I am not above liking to make a wide appeal, but the subject you propose is rather a staggering one, because you accompany it with a phrase lacking rhythm, and difficult to rhyme. You will at once see, by running through the alphabet, that Rome is the only serviceable rhyme for home, but the union of the two suggests jingle or doggerel. I defy any minor poet when furnished with such a phrase to refrain from bursting at once into No matter where you travel, no matter where you roam, you'll never dum-de-dum-dum-dee the folks back home. Sincerely yours, Rebelarabee. P.S. On second thought, I believe James Whitcomb Riley could do it and overcome the difficulties, but alas, I have not his touch. Dear Mrs. Larrabee, we never refuse verses because they are too good for the public. Nothing is too good for the public, but the public must be the judge of what pleases it. The folks back home is a phrase that will strike the eye and ear of thousands of wandering sons and daughters. They will choose that card from the heaped-up masses on the counters and send it to every state in the Union. If you will glance at your first card, you will see that though people may read it, they will always leave it on the counter. I want my cards on counters, by the thousand but I don't intend that they should be left there. Make an effort, dear Mrs. Larrabee. I could get the folks back home done here in the office in half an hour, but I'm giving you the chance because you live in Beulah, New Hampshire, and because you make beautiful pictures. Sincerely yours, Reuben Small. Dear Mr. Small, I enclose a colored sketch of the outside of the cottage whose living room I used in my first card. I chose it because I love the person who lives in it, because it always looked beautiful in the snow, and because the tree is so picturesque. The fact that it is gray for lack of paint may remind a casual wanderer that there is something to do, now and then, for the folks back home. The verse is just as bad as I thought it would be. It seems incredible that anyone should buy it. But ours is a big country, and there are many kinds of people living in it, so who knows? Why don't you accept my picture, and then you write the card? I could not put my initials on this. They are unknown to be sure, and I would want them to be, if you use it. Sincerely yours, Rebelarabee. Now here's a Christmas greeting to the folks back home. It comes to you across the space. Dear folks back home, I've searched the wide world over, but no matter where I roam, no friends are like the old friends, no folks like those back home. Dear Mrs. Larrabee, I gave you five dollars for the first picture in verses which you, as a writer, regard more highly than I, who am merely a manufacturer. Please accept twenty dollars for The Folks Back Home, on which I hope to make up my loss on the first card. I insist on signing the despised verse with your initials. In case R.L. should later come to mean something, you will be glad that a few thousand people have seen it. Sincerely, Reuben Small The Hessian Soldier Andirons the portrait over the Boynton mantle, and even Letty Boynton's cape were identified on the first card, sooner or later. But it was obvious that Mrs. Larrabee had to have a picture for her verses, and couldn't be supposed to make one up 
out of her head, though Ash Popham declared it had been done again and again in other parts of the world. Also, it was agreed that, as Letty's face was not distinguishable, nobody outside of Beulah could recognize her by her cape, and that anyhow it couldn't make much difference, for if anybody wanted to spend fifteen cents on a card, he would certainly buy the one about the folks back home. The popularity of this was established by the fact that it was selling, not only in Beulah and Greentown, but in Boston and in Racine, Wisconsin, and, it was rumored, even in Chicago. The village milliner in Beulah had disposed of 27 copies in 13 days, and the minister's wife was universally conceded to be the most celebrated person in the state of New Hampshire. Letty Boynton had an uncomfortable moment when she saw the first card, but common sense assured her that outside of a handful of neighbors, no one would identify her home surroundings. Meantime, she was proud of Reba's financial and artistic triumph in The Folks Back Home, and generously glad that she had no share in it. Twice during the autumn, David had broken his silence, but only to send her a postal from some western town telling her that he should have no regular address for a time, that he was traveling for a publishing firm and felt ill-adapted to the business. He hoped that she and the children were well, for he himself was not, etc., etc. The twins had been photographed by Osh Popham, who was jack-of-all-trades and master of many, and a sight of their dimpled charms, curly heads, and straight little bodies would have gladdened any father's heart, Letty thought. However, she scorned to win David back by any such specious means. If he didn't care to know whether his children were hump-backed, bow-legged, cross-eyed, club-footed, or feeble-minded, why should she enlighten him? This was her usual frame of mind, but in these last days of the year how she longed to pop the bewitching photographs and Reba's Christmas cards into an envelope and send them to David. But where? No word at all for weeks and weeks, and then only a postal from St. Joseph's, saying that he had given up his position on account of poor health. Nothing in all this to keep Christmas on, thought Letty, and she knitted and crocheted and sewed with extra ardor that the twin stockings might be filled with bright things of her own making. Join us next week, Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time for Chapter 8 of The Romance of a Christmas Card by Kate Douglas Wiggin. If you're enjoying the story, please take a moment and send us a review for 1001 Greatest Love Stories. We would appreciate that very much, and it helps other people find us. Until next Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, everyone, stay safe, and we'll be back soon.